Scripture reading this morning is from Matthew 18, 21 through 35. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, the master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had for payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seized him, choking him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant! I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you. So good morning. I didn't introduce myself before. My name is Drew Bennett, one of the pastors here. Uh, We, this fall, have been looking in Matthew's gospel at this very important concept in the Bible. One of the most important biblical concepts, uh, the kingdom of God. The Bible from beginning to end talks about this a bunch. The gospels particularly do, and Matthew's gospel in particular is is the gospel of the kingdom. And so if we're going to be followers of Jesus, we have to understand what the Bible means by this word, by this idea that the kingdom of God is breaking in to the world in the person and work of Jesus. So when Jesus talks about the kingdom, he usually does so by telling stories. We call them parables. And in these parables of the kingdom, Jesus is not only teaching us what we should believe, but also if we believe, he's showing us the kind of people we should be becoming. And it's the kind of people that make it easier for others to believe. And so we've said over and over again that gospel doctrine creates gospel, gospel culture. Gospel grace, if the gospel is the good news of grace in Jesus, if the doctrines of grace are ours, it should make us people of grace. And this morning we come to this topic, which is basically Christianity 101. If Christians should be known for anything, if there's, if there's a work that God has put us you know, to do, it is this work of learning to be people who forgive. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, can you imagine a community of people who aim themselves right at one another's faults and failures? 
See, there's this idea that the church is just a place where nice, moral, good people all get together and talk about their niceness. But can you imagine something different? Can you imagine a group of people who aim themselves right at one another's faults and failures, but not to shame and not to condemn, but instead to love and to mend and to restore? Wouldn't that be an amazing thing? I mean, almost unheard of in the world, wouldn't it? Welcome to the church. That's what we do. That's what Christians do because the Christian gospel is the good news that God has forgiven our sins in Jesus Christ and believing the good news of forgiveness makes us a forgiving people. Jesus told a story to another, uh, in another scene where there was a, a, a religious leader and this woman who was just known as an adulterer and in forgiving her, he, he confronted this religious leader and he said, look, Simon, she knows herself to be a big sinner and so she has a big heart for love. He said, the one who is forgiven little, loves little. But, but, and that's your problem, Simon. But the one who is forgiven much, loves much. And so in many ways, for us to be people who love, who have these huge hearts to love and to serve other people, we have to know just how much we've been forgiven. And that's what the story that Jesus tells here is about. It is about the massive debt of sin that God has pardoned that is ours. He's pardoned in Jesus Christ. And as such, we become people who radically give away grace to others. So forgiveness, a forgiving people. Well, here's the three things that we want to look at from this text this morning. Well, why is it that we should be known as such? Or what is the purpose of forgiveness? Secondly, how is it that we can be the kind of people that Jesus describes here? What is the power for forgiveness? And then lastly, what actually do we mean? In Christian circles, when we talk about forgiveness, what is the parts? What are the parts of forgiveness? And they're, they're shown to us here as well. So first, why? Why is forgiveness so central to life in the kingdom? Why does Jesus tell this story? And as he describes the kingdom, he, he you know, shows it as a place of forgiveness. And the answer is because this kingdom, this kingdom of heaven that Jesus is proclaiming here is not a power movement. It's a peace movement. And so the word kingdom conjures certain images in the imagination, doesn't it? Of blood-stained weapons of war and triumphal processions and conquering heroes. Kings win wars and kingdoms with power, but the kingdom of heaven is different. And that's why Jesus told all these parables, to describe that difference, because it's so different. We needed our imaginations to be fired up with these new ideas about what the kingdom really is. His kingdom, we're told, is one where the king gives away power where the kingdom comes through sacrificial, generous love. And so we read, beginning in verse 23, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And out of pity for him, he released him and forgave him the debt. Now, in light of that, if that's what the kingdom is like, there's a horrible irony in Constantine painting the Kiro, the symbol of Christ himself on the shields of his soldiers as they went to war to advance the Roman Empire in the fourth century, or the Crusaders emblazoned with the Red Cross slaughtering their way through the Holy Land because Jesus did not come to take up the sword against his enemies. That's what the people wanted. That's what the people expected, but he was not that kind of king. He came to go under the sword for his people because the threat was not Rome or Islam or liberalism today. The real threat is sin and death, and power cannot beat sin only love can. So the Christian gospel is that God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that all who believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We all know, we all know that verse. The cross, then, is the symbol 
of reconciling love. The cross is not the symbol of, of political conquering. It's the symbol of reconciling love. Jesus died for our sins to pay our debts so that we could be in right relationship with God. That's the problem with all of our lives. That's the thing that has to be fixed or nothing else can be fixed. We are not right with God, but Jesus has come. And in his death, he has made it so that we could be right with God. And that's what the kingdom of heaven is all about. We do not pay our way back into right relationship with God. That's religion. But that's not Christianity. It's what the servant asked for. Look, notice, did you see in verse 26, he says, when this man who owed the king so much, he says, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. So that's the way most people approach God. They want to try to pay it back. They want to try to, you know, I've been bad. And so give me a second chance. And if you do, I'll do enough good, I promise, so that in the end, all of the good will outweigh all of the bad. And this is the way we typically think about such things. In another story, Jesus told the prodigal servant, prodigal son story, sorry, uh, the boy comes back home and he says to his father, do you remember? He says, look, just make me, I'm no longer worthy to be called a son. Just make me a hired servant. He wanted to pay the father back. He wanted to pay penance. He wanted to do good to outweigh the, the bad and to pay back the inheritance that he had lost. There's a sin debt that we owe to God. But here's the thing. It is so great. It is so great, it's too great for us to ever pay it down on our own. It's naive to think that we could ever do enough good to outweigh the bad. It's something that God must do. It's a debt God must pay. It's the only way. And Jesus' story reminds us that God has, in fact, done just that in sending his son into the world. And he's done it gladly, not begrudgingly. Now, what kind of people should that make us? That's the question, right? And the brief exchange between Jesus and Peter in verses 21 and 22 describe it best, I think. So look there, Peter. Oh, Peter. You just feel for Peter if you read the Gospels. He's so great. And he's always getting himself in trouble. And and he's always getting taken to the woodshed. And here it happens to him again. Peter is undoubtedly impressed with his willingness to forgive his brother seven times when he sins, which is why he offers the answer before Jesus even asks the question. Isn't that great? Peter asks a question and then gives the answer because he wants to be the guy who got it right. Super spiritual, Peter. Seven times. And then Jesus blows his self-righteousness smithereens. Verse 22, no, Peter, not seven times, but 77 times. Or seven times 70. We're not exactly sure what the number means, and that's part of the point, I think. But what Jesus means here is this. Well, I mean, for one thing, he's saying, look, Peter, the kind of thing I'm talking about is a supernatural thing. He's saying there should be no end to your forgiveness. If you're a Christian, you're never not allowed to forgive. That's what Jesus means here. It doesn't matter how big or how often you've been sinned against. What he's saying is um, it's a standard, Peter, that you and no one else could ever meet in your own strength. You need, the new, you need new life in you to do it. You need God's heart for sinners beating in your own chest to be able to come close to what we're being called to here. But having said that, let's be careful because this can be used in wrong ways. It can be used to coerce people to stay in unhealthy or abusive relationships, for example. And that's surely not what Jesus is teaching here. It's not what I'm saying either. Remember, this text is connected to the one before it about dealing head-on with sin. And so this is why you probably should bring a Bible church so that we print certain portions. But if you could go back to verse 15 of chapter 18, you'll see there 
there's some pretty strong teaching that Jesus has there about how we're to deal with sin in our community. And he says, if a brother sins, uh, then you confront him. You don't, you don't wish it away. You don't sweep it under the rug. You confront. And if he still doesn't listen to you, then here, here's what you do. You go and find somebody else who's seen the same thing you do. And the two of you go and you double down on, on the, the bet and you get this guy to really try to, you know, be honest about the sin in his life. And if that doesn't work, then you go a step further and you get the church involved. You go to the spiritual authorities and you keep pressing on this person until there is repentance. So confrontation is a huge part of what the church does. And what that means is that Jesus' love is aimed right at our sin. So people shaped by his love, we would... Do the same thing, and that means a couple of things. It means first that we should, as, I mean, I love the way Jonathan did that a minute ago uh, with McKenzie. You know, we should be people who expect sin in ourselves and in others and go right after it and demand confession and repentance because the power of relationships in the church isn't that we don't sin against one another. Wouldn't that be great? Don't you wish that could be true? I would be out of a job, but that would be okay with me, to be honest. If we could ever figure out how to not constantly be letting one down and hurting one another's feelings and doing this to one another, it's just the nature. The, the more There's this idea that a community, the re- real community is this place where nobody ever does that to one another. But the truth is, is the closer you get to real community, the more often you find that thing happening in your life. Because we're sinners. I'm one, you're one. Put us together, we're a mess. You with me? And so we're better off realize we should just expect it because the power, the power isn't that we don't sin against one another. The power is that we expect to do so. And so we're not surprised when it happens. And then we can be ready with forgiveness. And that's the second thing. You got to expect sin and you got to be ready with forgiveness. We got, we've got to have our minds made up beforehand about these things because, so that, that when we do this to one another, forgiveness is already there. So when we inevitably sin against one another as we will, we don't have to hope we can find forgiveness. We've already made our mind up, and it's there. It's waiting on the offense as it takes place, and so we can just be ready with it. So Jesus' 70 times 7 here doesn't describe the extent that we're to forgive one another in my mind. It describes our readiness to do so, that we've just decided this is the way it's going to be. How crazy, I haven't been up here in a few weeks, but how crazy was the week before last when the news first broke about the storm in the Atlantic. I mean, you couldn't find gas. People were, like, beating one another up over water and Publix and Aldi. And you want to just say, guys, I just, like, we've done this before, guys. Hello. And then I remember a 1,000 people a day moved to Florida, and so then I start judging all the people, like, you obviously are not from around here. You people waiting four deep in line for gas nine days before the storm's going to hit. Gas will be here tomorrow. It's going to be okay. But right, but, but there's this panic that sets in. Why? Because we've learned, as Floridians, we've learned if you don't get ready, it's just that you have a little bit more time than most people think. But if you don't get ready, if you don't make sure you have all you need ahead of time, once the storm hits, it's too late. At that point, the stores are closed. Gas isn't coming. You might be without power for a few days. There's nowhere to go to get the supplies you need once the storm comes. And Jesus is saying to Peter and to us, if you wait, if you wait until the storm hits, if you wait until that relational storm hits, see, 
you're in trouble because once it comes, it's too late. You've got to decide ahead of time that you're going to meet sin with forgiveness because if you wait until it happens, then you're in the storm. And in the storm, you don't have the emotional resources that you need. So while you're healthy, choose to act in a healthy way when things go bad. That's what he's saying. So that's, that's, that's why. The why, why we're to be people who are known for our forgiveness is because the kingdom is a forgiveness movement. It's not a power movement, it's a peace movement. But second, we want to also talk about how we can be people like this. How can we be the kind of people I'm trying to describe? Because that's really what this parable is for. It's to show us where the power to forgive comes from or to show us where the inability to forgive comes from. And the connection here is between faith and forgiveness or negatively between unbelief and unforgiveness. In Luke's gospel, Jesus gives the same, he has the same encounter with, with Peter. Lord, seven times? No. Peter, 70 times seven. And Peter's response there is perfect. He says, Lord, increase my faith. If that's what it takes, I don't have that in me. You got to give me something. And that's, that's, that's what we should feel as we read about that exchange and then read the story Jesus teaches. That there is a need, there's a connection between faith and forgiveness. And so where we find ourselves insufficient to meet the needs of the sinners just in our house. Hello? Not to mention at our workplace. Not to mention in our neighborhood. Not to mention all the places we go. We have to cry out and say, oh Lord, give me more faith. Because there's this connection. So the point is made in the different sums of money that you see here. Unforgiveness is bad math. So the man in the story owed the king 10,000 talents, verse 24. This is a huge sum of money. One talent was the equivalent of 20 years' wages. So this is billions. You'll see I've, I titled this point national debt. This is the national debt. This is more money than you can even imagine. 10,000 was the largest uh, number in the Roman world. The talent was the largest uh, monetary denomination, and so it, it's literally the largest sum of money you could you could conceptualize. And in many ways, it's an exaggerated number. I mean, this guy is this this like this guy is like Dave Ramsey would kill this guy. Okay, he is so in debt, and it's exaggerated. It's it's almost we're we're making fun to make a point. Uh, this is the man who owed the equivalent of the national debt, and then when that debt was forgiven, he went out. And the very first thing on his agenda after being forgiven that amount of money was to find the guy who owed him a few bucks and to begin to choke him out. He finds a man, verse 20, who owes him 100 denarii. Now, this is real money. A denarii was a day's wage. So we're dealing with three months' wages here. So just for easy math, $10 billion, this is $10,000. It's just not just a few bucks. It's still a big deal, but nothing in comparison to the debt that was owed that was forgiven. And that's why his behavior is such a surprise. The man falls down and he pleads with him. He says, and he begs for mercy. He says, just be patient with me and I'll pay you back, verse 29. Now what's fascinating is you gotta see the connection. It's the same exact wording there in verse 29 as, as it was in verse 26. Word for word, look at verse 26. The first man, when he's confronted with his debt to the king, falls on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. He goes out, finds the guy who owes him a much smaller size debt, 
That servant falls down, pleads with him, have patience upon me, and I will pay you. So just a few minutes before, this man, he was the one on his knees, and his debt was forgiven by the king. And now here he is with this man on his knees before him, and it should have triggered a memory. Uh, It should have made him think of exactly how he had been treated by the king, but he seems to be completely forgetful of that encounter. He instead throws the man in jail until he pays the debt. And it's so incongruous. It's so is so contrary to how he should have responded that it says, verse 31, that the other servants saw it and they were greatly distressed. They were really upset by this. And we're meant to be really upset by this, by how we see this man acting. But be careful because there's a you are the man moment here in this parable, right? We're to be, we're to be just absolutely overwhelmed and upset when we see ourselves doing this to one another. Because it's so incongruous with the way we've been treated. They couldn't believe it, and we should be shocked too. Peter, Peter wanted a number. How many times? Isn't that right? Don't you, you, how many times? Please, I need to know. I need to know the number. What's the number so I can know when I get to the number? How many times do I have to forgive? What's the limit? There's got to be a limit. Seven times? That's a big number. Seventy times seven? Wow, that, that's an inconceivable number, but the point, I think, is that there is no number point is, if you're counting, you've missed the point. When the master learns what the servant had done, he summoned him to himself. He says, verse 32, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt that you owed to me because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? See, there it is. If you do not forgive It is because you've forgotten that you've been forgiven. If you fail to show mercy to others when they sin against you, it doesn't matter if it's the tenth time or the first time or the hundredth time. In some sense, if you do not show mercy, it's because your heart is is out of touch with the mercy that God has shown to you in your sin. The Bible says that faith energizes love. It expresses itself in love. Faith is the knowing, is the experiencing of God's mercy toward you. Forgiveness is the act of putting that faith in action by showing mercy to others. And so if there's a forgiveness problem, there's a faith problem. That's what we learn here. And so the power to be ready with forgiveness comes from two truths. Faith is these two truths becoming lodged in your heart. And here are the two truths. In whatever interaction you're in where forgiveness is a struggle, here are the two things you got to know. Here are the two things you got to believe. And if they get lodged in your heart, then you'll be able to do what Jesus is saying here. And the first is, whatever encounter I'm in, whatever encounter you're in, you're the big sinner. And the reason we can be brutally honest about that is because the second truth is, is that even if you're the big sinner, God's heart for you is bigger than your big sin. Now, just each of those really quickly as we draw to a close here this morning. The first, first truth to get lodged in your heart is that you're the big sinner. If you're having a hard time forgiving, it might be that you think of the other person as the bigger sinner than you are. And that's the reason for the exaggerated numbers here, right? The wicked servant is a $10 billion sinner. Just wrap your head around that for a minute. The other man is a $10,000 sinner. And they're both big numbers, but the difference is staggering. So the one man is one one millionth of the sinner the other person is. That's the math. And the question is, do you identify yourself with the first servant or the second? Are you, are you a $10 billion sinner? Or do you think of yourself as a $10,000 sinner? They're both big numbers. But there's a big difference between the two as well. And Jesus wants me and he wants you to identify 
Not, not with the second servant, but with the first servant. He's trying to tell us how expensive we are to love. The debt of sin that we owe to God is a cosmic debt because he is supremely worthy of our everything. In comparison to what we have done to him, the worst sins we commit against one another are pittance. So even when you sin against me, in the worst ways, I am still the bigger sinner because of the debt I owe to God. That's how this works, see? No matter, no matter what. Now it matters, of course, whether I'm thinking about my sin or yours, that's where this kind of breaks down. But the Bible is clear that the way into these kinds of interactions among Christians, at least, is to always start with my own sin. So Matthew 7, Jesus says, first take out the log that's in your eye, and then, and only then, can you see clearly to take out the speck in your brother's eye. But if you're trying to confront somebody else, remember, they've got a speck, but you've got a log. Now, I can talk this way. We can be this brutally honest. I mean, wasn't it a great moment, Mackenzie, like giving you guys the thumbs up about how big sinners we all are and that we're going to do this together? Right? We can be this way with one another. And you might, I mean, if you're here and you're thinking, these are weird people, they're talking about their failures with a smile on their face. How can they do that? What, what, what in the world is that? And the reason we can be so brutally honest and okay and it's going to be okay is because I may be the, the big sinner in our relationship, but God's heart for me is bigger than my big sin. Jesus describes this master as being moved to pity, and it's astounding. God loves sinners. I hold, I, I hold on to Hebrews 4.15 uh, in my life so often that says that Jesus sympathizes with us in our weaknesses and sins. He's not angry. He's not annoyed. Isn't that amazing? He's compassionate about the very worst parts of me when I don't experience anybody else to be that. He is. He's compassionate toward our, our, our betrayal and our treason. Now, how do I know that? Well, I quoted John 3.16, which we all know. John 3.17 is less familiar, but here's what it says. It says, God so loved the world that he sent his son. And then it says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that in order that the world might be saved through him. So God's heart, according to Jesus there, is to save and not condemn. And Jesus is the physical proof that God's heart is bigger than our big sins. And so as Christians, that means that we're put on a mission to save and not to condemn, which means aiming our love right at the sins of others and right at our own sins, which means sometimes confronting Matthew 18, 15 and following, but far more often forgiving Matthew 18, 21 and here, covering, overlooking, bearing with. And the ratio between those two things is probably something like 100 to 1. So yes, confront one another in marriage, confront one another in friendship, but for every time you do that, a hundred times, just overlook the offense. Cover it. Bear with it. It's way better that way. It's a general rule. hundred to one, something like that, because it's what our hearts can really bear. But can you imagine being this kind of people? There's power for us to be this kind of people, and here's what it would look like in our life. So lastly, as we... Just close. What forgiveness really is then? What are the parts? And we see them. I mean, what are we really talking about doing in one another's lives? And here, in the way this, the king interacts with this wicked servant at the beginning of the parable, we see some of the different parts of what the church typically means by forgiveness. And the first thing is that the king acknowledges the debt. You see that? He brought the servant into his presence to settle accounts. 
Uh, and, and he's honest about what's owed. And I, I don't have much to say here, but I wanted to mention this as a caveat to what I just said because I've realized just in the past few weeks that I, I have a real problem with this. I, I don't like to admit, uh, and, and I learned this. It's part, of, uh, it's part of my story for a lot of complex reasons. I learned to do this as a child, and I've carried it over into adulthood. I don't like to admit that other people have sinned against me. It doesn't feel good. And so what I do is I, I sweep it under the rug. Oh, I say it's no big deal, but it's a big deal. You with me? I, I, I don't deal with it, but it still affects me. And so when I think that the, the hurt and the, the, the fear and all of those things, when, I, when I, I think it will go away if I just don't address it, but it doesn't. It just goes subterranean. And that's way, way more dangerous. And so there's just honesty. There's honesty about these things. We have to be constantly confessing our sins and receiving one another's confessions. But second, we read that the king pitied the servant. So he's, he's honest, he addresses it, and then he shows pity to the servant who owed him so much. So verse 27, out of pity for him, he acts. He had every reason to be angry, but instead he has compassion. He was tenderhearted. And so forgiveness is a strategy for keeping your heart soft. Because when someone sins against you, it's easy to become hard. You know, you just, it's because it hurts so bad. But here's the problem. When you become hard-hearted, as hard as it is to not become hard-hearted, when, that, when your heart starts to become hard in response to the way other people hurt you and upset you, what's happening is the evil that they have done to you is now passing into you and beginning to change you. Their hard-heartedness towards you is now creating hard-heartedness in you towards them. And the evil's being perpetuated. So forgiveness doesn't look at sin and say, don't worry about it, it's not a big deal. It doesn't stay in the relationship, but with a hard heart. That's the worst thing you could do. That's my strategy, by the way. I'm repenting of that. I'm gonna stay with you, but I'm gonna pull away from you more and more and more because I don't trust you. But the goal is to live with a heart for the other person that is bigger than their big sin. And sometimes the only way to stay soft-hearted is to get out of the relationship. But the goal here, verse 36, is to forgive from the heart. That's the issue. The issue is, is what's going on in your heart here? Your heart needs to be soft. We have to live with soft hearts towards one another. So forgiveness and trust aren't the same thing. But forgiveness and compassion are. Miroslav Volf, Croatian theologian, famously said, Forgiveness flounders when I exclude myself from the community of sinners and when I exclude my enemy from the community of humans. Brennan Manning wrote that the key to forgiveness is to find where your enemies cry. The truth, friends, is that we sin against one another because we've been sinned against. So the first part of forgiveness is to be compassionate, to not let your heart get hard because that's deadly. Bitterness is a scary thing. In verse 35, Jesus says that if you don't forgive, if, even the big things, if you don't forgive, eventually you're the one who ends up in chains. So the king, he was honest, he addressed the issue, he pitied this servant. The third thing we see then is out of his pity, he paid down the debt. Verse 27, he paid the debt off out of his own treasury, out of his own expense. And in the Bible, the debt, debt is a synonym for sin because every sin creates a debt. There's an emotional debt of pain. There, and there are two options when this happens. You can make the other person pay or you can pay down the debt yourself. And the way you make the other person pay is you cause them pain. You want them to feel the pain. The debt of sin is the pain that you feel. And the way to pay to make the other person pay is that they have, need to feel some of the pain that you feel. And every time they feel the pain, it's paying down the debt some. And so you can make them pay by running them down to other people or by withdrawing your friendship from them or by setting yourself against them and working toward their demise. 
But when you forgive, you pay the debt down yourself. You absorb the pain. You feel all the pain. You don't, you don't require that they feel it. You feel it. And every time you have an opportunity to say something bad about them to somebody else and you don't, oh, it hurts, but you're paying the debt down. You feel it. It's hard. The Bible says, pray for your enemies and do good to those who hate you and bless those who curse you. So every time you pray and ask God to work in the life of the person who's hurt you, which is a supernatural thing. You're paying down the debt. You're absorbing the hurt. You're bearing the cost of their sins. But doesn't that sound familiar? Isn't that exactly what God's done for us in Jesus? And that's forgiveness. And then there's one more thing. The king, he was honest. He addressed the issue. He had pity. And out of that pity, he generously, sacrificially paid down the debt himself. And then verse 27, he let him go. He didn't demand justice. He didn't throw him into jail. He didn't set up a payment plan. He didn't say, I forgive you, but there are consequences you're going to have to live with. He let him go. And the etymology of the word forgiveness refers to a release. When you forgive, you send the person away. You say, I'm not going to allow myself to live in this hurt because if I do, I will rot spiritually. Instead, you say, I'm going to make sure that both you and me that we get beyond this, that we move beyond this, that we keep going. I'm not, not going to let it define either of us or our relationship going forward because, and because that happens, you know, we do that to one another. Sometimes we, we collect the sins of others and keep them with us in the present as emotional accessories that we live with, that make us feel better about ourselves, that make us emotional accessories. Do you, do you see the metaphor that make us not think about our ugliness so much? because we can focus on the ugliest of other people, we don't move on. We, let, we don't let the other person move on either, and so we just get stuck. And so those, those are the parts of forgiveness. You're honest, you keep a soft heart, you sacrificially pay the debt down and don't make the other person pay, and as best you can, you move on, you keep going, and you do it over and over and over again. Every time you feel the pain, it's hard. It's, I mean, it's, oh, this sounds exhausting, doesn't it? but it's far more costly to not forgive. And there are resources in Jesus' love for us to make this possible. And if you don't do those three things, see, if you don't do those three things, then when you try to deal with the sins of others, it will be destructive. It will be vengeance, not justice, vengeance, which isn't ours, but God's, the Bible says. So the picture of this man choking his fellow servant and throwing him in the jail, you want to say, dude, just chill, relax, tranquilo, tranquilo, right? Something's really wrong with him. But Jesus has given us a picture of what it looks like when we try to deal with sin and each other without forgiveness. Now we're out of time. We're out of time, but one more thing, and this is this is this is important. I really this is really important. What we're talking about this morning, this matters to Jesus, and I know this because of verse 35. He ends with a warning. And I want you to let it sit on your heart before you explain it away, before you theologize. What is the obvious meaning here away? He says this. He says, if you do not forgive, then God will treat you like the king treated the wicked servant. Do you see it there, verse 35? So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. It's not a one-off statement. Listen to Matthew 6. Jesus says, pray like this. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are our debtors. And then he goes on later in that chapter to say, if you forgive others, your heavenly father will forgive you. 
But if you do not forgive others, neither will God forgive you. Now, that doesn't fit into our tidy theological boxes, so what does it mean? And the best explanation that I found is from Frederick Buechner, who put it like this. Here are his words. He said, To forgive somebody is to say, you've done something unspeakable, but I refuse to let it stand between us. To accept forgiveness means to admit that you've done something unspeakable that needs to be forgiven, and thus both parties must swallow the same thing, their pride. Listen to Buechner. He says, Jesus is not saying that God's forgiveness is conditional upon our forgiving others. What he is saying is that the pride which keeps us from forgiving is the same pride which keeps us from accepting forgiveness. And will God please help us do something about it? We're going to sing in just a minute, Amazing Grace. And then the chorus says, my chains are gone. The chains are the chains of pride. The pride that keeps us from forgiving is the same pride which keeps us from accepting that God truly has forgiven us. And God, would you please do something about that? Would you pray with me? Let's pray just for that. So, Father, we do ask just that. We ask that in this moment as we sing, grace is nothing if it's not amazing. If it's not amazing, it's not grace. And yet we confess that we're people who talk about the grace of God and yet can be so hard-hearted that we are not amazed by it. Because a life of amazement looks like running around trying to cover the sins of others and to, and to give freely what we've received so freely from you. And yet we confess to you that's so hard for us. We get hurt and we want justice, but not justice for ourselves. We never ask for that but justice for other people. And we realize the incongruity of the way we live. We're caught, Father, by this story. And so Jesus, thank you for the great love that you've shown for us, that indeed the grace that is ours is truly amazing. And Spirit, come as we sing. Would you do that? Would you fill our hearts with amazement at your great love for us? And then would you empower us in love for one another that we might be a people who truly belong to this kingdom that's invading the world, this kingdom of grace, this kingdom of mercy, this kingdom where kings lay down their lives for their servants and not the other way around. What, what an amazing, what amazing news that we have to share this morning with one another. What, what amazing things we have to sing about. And so as we sing, may we sing ourselves towards this amazement. Sometimes we have to do that. If we don't feel it, as we sing, cause us to feel it, Father, that's what we ask. We can do none of that on our own, and so we're in your hands, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. These are not just words. Uh, I am the biggest sinner in the church, uh, and the hardest part of being a pastor for me is to know that my role here increases the probability that I will sin against you, and I've sinned against many of you. Would you forgive me? The other part that's hard is it makes it easy to be sinned against. And I have, and I, you know, and I've been hurt. And, but, I, but I'm standing before you to say, I, I forgive you. There's power. Do you, I mean, can you feel the power and freedom in living that way towards one another? That is power the world does not know. That's freedom the world is longing for. And that is the very thing that the gospel can work into our lives, that the, the spirit can come upon us in that way. And so if we would live that way towards one another. We would be a people that change the world. And that's what these words mean, that we go in that power and in that freedom to share the good news of the gospel, not just with our words, but with the way we interact and live with one another and with the people that we love. And so receive these words. Uh, may, may you sing that song until grace is amazing and a wonder in your heart today. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. 
May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace. Go in his peace.